4: Today, we're going to be resuming our conversation with a couple of friends of mine from down in Louisiana. We're going to resume our discussion about the Atchafalaya Delta, the Wax Lake Delta, the historical development of that area and the waterfowl response to it, and then importantly, how those waterfowl abundances began to change, oh, probably over the past 20 to 30 years. And we're going to have a conversation, speculative conversation in some respects about what might have been going on there. Um, so we're going to jump right into it. Larry and Mike, thank you guys for joining us here again on the podcast and and welcome back. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me, Mike. And let's see, I have to decide here who I'm going to throw this first question to, and perhaps I will throw it to you, Mike. You, you told us on the last episode that you were manager at the Chafalaya Delta WMA uh, for a number of years. So uh, what I'll get you to do is remind me what those years were and then, uh, Tell us a bit about your responsibilities there and how those, those duties enabled you to see and appreciate the waterfowl abundance, the importance of that region to waterfowl. So what were the years and just describe a bit of your duties?
2: Okay, great. Yeah, so I was there from 93 to 98. Um, but but I actually, I'll backtrack a little bit because when I was at Marsh Island prior to that from 85 to 93, uh, we did. I, I helped with some of the aerial surveys and I kind of forgot about that. to start looking at some of this data. Uh, so we started apparently the historical data I think I was involved in from the beginning, which the aerial surveys of all the coastal areas, which included Chafalaya Delta, starting in 1988-89. Uh, 88, 89, and, and I was one of the, you know, the rare guys back in the day that um, was a biologist, but also did law enforcement. So I did law enforcement work on the wax primarily because the guys at the main Delta really weren't spending a lot of time there. So I I, was, I did go. My first hunt there was in 88, but I actually started doing some law enforcement work probably – in about 89 or 90. I, I can't even remember exactly. Um, but the duties when I, when I transferred to a chaff delta, in addition to continuing aerial surveys, um, we did bag checks, right? Checking hunters. Um, we, you know, I uh, kind of oversaw the, the campgrounds work and then also had, uh, Uh, Il Barry Island Refuge. Uh, so we did, you know, that stuff over to the, to the east of the Barry Island there, work there. But, but the work at, at at Chaflai was, you know, assisting with, with students. Like we talked about Dr. Frank Rower and his students, uh, helping some of those guys with lodging and logistics and, you know, all oil and gas and working with the core with the dredging and, and just lots of stuff, uh, involved in, in that kind of, that kind of work.
4: As, as I instructed on the previous episode, the, it would be very useful for our listeners, well, I guess, number one, to go back and listen to that, the first episode on this topic if you haven't, but, but also use Google Earth to your advantage in this conversation to help understand what's going on in some of the places that we're talking about, but, but also if when you do that make note that there's no roads leading out there to the Chepilida Delta or the Wax Lake Delta and so Mike you were manager out there and you talked about some lodging and and so it leads me naturally to ask you uh, did you did you stay out there to some extent as manager uh or did you I mean, what did that look like? Or were you stationed at some office uh, on the uh, mainland? I guess you might say.
2: No, that's a good point, uh, and something that I, I really didn't even think of mentioning. But yeah, no, it's you know, we we would leave from from Berwick, right, from the launch there in Berwick on the on the Chaffley River and coastal. And, and take a boat down to the headquarters at the main delta. And I'll just keep calling it the main delta. But again, the Echafalai River Delta, we had a we had a houseboat there with lodging uh, and also had a small camp um, up on the bank and all, you know, run by generators. Um, but we would work. It was essentially like working offshore. We did shift work, uh, typically eight and six, eight days on, six days off. Um, that was pretty much our schedule, uh, and as supervisor, I kind of worked, uh, you know, with both groups, both, both different crews. So I would kind of come and go, uh, just depending on the, on the need. Um, but yeah, so it's extremely remote. Um, and then navigating to the wax, uh, of course, if you look at that, you know, from, from the Google earth perspective, and, and as Larry knows, if you spent much time out there, um, navigating that place by boat is 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 quite interesting right and um you know especially traversing between the two deltas uh going out in open bay and trying to make sure you hit those passes because a lot of these you know these sandbars are are submerged by a few inches or, or a foot or so and um And of course, again, it's tidal and and it all looks like open water sometimes. Right. So uh, extremely deceiving and and extremely uh, uh, challenging in terms of navigation.
4: Uh, like, how far down the river would you have to travel from the boat launch, Mike? I'm not too familiar with it. Berwick is up at Morgan City, right? And so that river's, how far down there? Yeah,
2: do it's to- just, right, it's just out of Morgan City. I would think, I think it's about 20 miles, maybe 15 miles or something. It's it's about a 30-minute trip or so. Now, back in the day, you know, when oil and gas was really booming, you had the offshore supply boats, Um through that river, right? Quite a few of them. And it was, those guys can throw a huge wake. I mean, it's, uh, you know, lots of boats get swamped and whatever if they don't slow down or don't see you. And then the fog, you throw the fog into there. Um, So not only is it a, a, quite a trip down the river and there are sandbars, you know, um, about halfway down on either side that you gotta, you just gotta make sure you know where you, where you're going. Uh, and so, you know, back in the day when GPS first came out, you really depended on that and radar, uh, quite a bit. So yeah, it's, um, it was, uh, That's what made it so dynamic, I guess, and so interesting is that it was it was such a cool place. But then it also that added to part of the job in terms of when it got more popular with hunters, Uh, they many of them learned that the hard way. And of course, we had to assist with them. We had to assist in night night rescues, which is, you know, you know, a challenge in its own navigating that in the dark. Right. Trying to find somebody. We'd get those calls. Right. enforcement really wasn't around there and we were stationed there. So, uh, sheriff's office, <laughs> you know, it was kind of like, ah, you know, would y'all mind going? So we would often go, you know, from the main Delta across the Bay to the wax, you know, to go try to find somebody out, you know, a lot of times they didn't know where they were, right. They were heading South, you know, <laughs> it was, uh, anyway, those kinds of things made it, made it really interesting to say the least talk about stories. Whew.
4: Well, well, Mike, what was the craziest story with regard to one of those rescues? Do you have one off the top of your head?
2: Well, this one reminds me – Yeah, that rescue reminds me, it was an agent out of uh, Iberia Parish, I won't say his name, but anyway, he called me (laughs) and said, hey, man, I got a, I don't remember, cousin or friend or something, you know, they called him and they're lost. They're somewhere on the wax. That's where, somewhere on the wax, right? Mm, (laughs) So you're you're looking at, you know, uh, okay, we got about Thirty thousand acres of where they could be in that in that you know spider web of of splays and passes and uh, we found him um, and he was he was way out at the end of a splay and he he thought he was he was going you know and I told him okay follow me he's like well that's not the right direction and I'm like okay where do you think it is and it was south I mean he was heading to Cuba so. Um, <laughs> You know, and people just, and, and then, and I remember with GPS, I mean, we had the really, you know, we, we, that's where I first got introduced to it when it kind of first came out and they were still kind of, uh, you didn't have really good readings, right. Cause that was still kind of monitored or scrambled or whatever by the military. But, um, you know, I remember staff, we were working the wax and we would work late late hunters, you know, till after dark. And then we had to get back to the, to the main Delta and, they're like, OK, I said, you want to follow me? And they're like, ah, uh, you know, you're going to go through the bay. And I'm like, yeah, man, I got it. You know, I got a GPS. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, that was one of the the stories that really sticks out. But there were there were lots of those.
4: What did people do before GPS? Did you just have to I mean, go during the day, I would imagine, uh, or just what did you do then?
2: Yeah, yeah, you know, a lot of folks, um, geez, Larry, I don't know if you, if you remember any of those times camping on the wax. You could <laughs> you could hear them. You could hear them running and then you could hear them <laughs> hitting the land. Yeah, you, know?
1: right. <laughs> yeah you, fi- you figured it out, Mike. You just figured it out. You I figured uh, it out. I, I still remember one day when we hit that, uh, you'd be you'd be going down the, you'd be going down the Atchafalaya River, and and then at one point you just hit this bank of fog, and we we knew we were still a couple of miles north on the river, of getting to the management area. We I was always shooting for for buoy fifty six because there are navigation buoys in the river, and we would take compass bearings. I had a sheet of paper with compass (laughs) bearings from each buoy to find my way down there. Well, I hit this wall of fog, and I was actually hunting with Bren Haas, uh, the head of CPRA right now. And when we hit that wall of fog, he pulled out his GPS unit, and I pulled out my GPS unit. And we looked at each other, and I spoke first. And I said, (laughs) I have this, but I don't know how to use it. I was hoping you did. <laughs> and Brenn Bren, Bren Haas looked at me and he said, Damn, that's the exact same thing I was thinking. But you know what we did? We, <laughs> we put our GPS mm-hmm. units away and we found our way. And and that was how we did it in in those days. We just uh, you know, <laughs> you had a compass, so you knew you weren't headed to Cuba, and then <laughs> 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 and that's important. <laughs> That's really it's important, important, as Mike will tell you. Very important, because <laughs> you know so. you see
2: lights out there, and they, those guys would see rigs and thinking they were looking at you know bell eel or something. You know, it's <laughs> you're just you're like, right,
1: man. You're right. Wow. But no, we didn't wait. We didn't wait until daylight, Brazier. Come on, man.
4: Well, I, I didn't know. Didn't know. I mean, it just shows you how little experience I have on those big river systems in those areas. I would been I would have been one of the people that would have been hitching a ride with you and saying, Hey, I hope you know how to do this. Well, and and Mike also, those crew boats, those those oil supply boats
1: that are coming up the river, of course they have they have radar. And so mm-hmm. most of the time they could see you and you could hear their motor. And what you would do is you would hear them shut down. You would hear them, you know, going full RPMs and then they would shut down and then they would fire back up. Now it's dark and you're running down river and they're coming up river, but by them mm. shutting down and then getting back up, they were leaving a hole in that four to eight foot wake that they shut, that they throw. Mm-hmm. And your job was to find that hole to get through it. And, and that's how you that's how you did it. And the, the first couple of times it's unnerving. Um, but the, the only time I ever had any Mm. trouble was when, was when the guy didn't shut down. And, uh, and then I knew there wasn't a hole in the wake, and I had to find the <laughs> quickest cut I could find immediately. Um, at, Mike and I could tell these stories all day.
2: <laughs> Ooh, yeah, humble, humbling experiences, I can tell you that. I, I definitely have lost years of my life from some of those days, no doubt.
4: But that's, that's relevant here because what it says is that at the other end of that travel – there would lie a reward that you would remember and that would keep you going back time and time again, right? Amen. And that's what we want to talk about here. And so, Mike, I guess uh, you, I wanted to ask you about some of the waterfowl surveys that you conducted back then and what some of the numbers were and what, uh, what we saw in terms of a waterfowl response to this new source of habitat, this new abundant food resource. What are we talking about there in terms of waterfowl numbers?
2: Okay. Yeah. So, um, and I, I printed out a graph that I had done for w- when we proposed that, uh, that uh, two o'clock closure back in 2007. And it started again with the 1988 to 89 survey and went through 2006, 2007. And I'll just show you just real quickly, talk about some peaks. And I kind of mentioned it on that first email exchange. that kind of started this that I thought that I recalled one of the counts, one of the higher counts, was around just under 250,000 birds. Um, and in, let's see, this was in 1989 and 90. 1989 and 90. Let me make sure that's right. No, I take that back. This was ninety three, ninety four. We had peaks, and then also 88, 89. We had peaks just at the Wax Delta, just under 160,000 uh, birds and, you know, waterfowl. And that was just on the on the wax delta. And then on the main delta, during those same counts, we were just under, I mean, right under 100,000. So, you know, there was your 200, nearly a quarter million ducks. Uh, that was some of the peaks. And a lot of those were close to, you know, across the board in those earlier years, uh, a lot of them were over 100,000 just at, at the wax and, and Usually it was less at the main delta because the habitat, again, was a little bit different, a little bit um, less productive, but but phenomenal numbers, you know, And we and Larry seen that we, you know, back in those days, it just it it boggled my mind. And it still does to remember um, flying over and even during the when the season was open, because these were some of these numbers were during the open season. And those birds are just raft up right off, you know, in a little bit deeper water, not very deep, but just outside of the hunters and, uh, and just phenomenal rafts. of. And I re- really remember the mallard, pintail and canvasback numbers just being, you know, it seems like you would fly for miles and it was just solid, you know, ducks touching each other, you know, just these massive rafts and just, just. Uh, so those numbers, that was the kind of numbers we had back in the day. And then Of course, you know, numbers nowadays, Larry can attest to. But if you looked at the number, uh, the November survey uh, for Chafalai Delta, it was, um, I don't know, I think about 7,000 birds. I got it down here somewhere.
0: You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages. Every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.
4: Now, Larry, your transect lines that we spoke about on the previous episode do not intersect with the with with either of these deltas, right? And that's not to say that you're not you're not kind of extrapolating to them but on the basis of this design, but just kind of the surveys that Mike is talking about here with the quarter million birds there on the deltas are not the same surveys that you fly. Uh, right. And and do you have a transect that runs near these deltas?
1: Yeah, you're correct, Mike. The purpose of my survey, if I can use that terminology, is to estimate the number of ducks in southeast Louisiana and southwest Louisiana. So the surveys that the transects that I fly are a systematic random sample of all the habitats in those surveyed areas. Uh, The surveys that Mike's talking about are specific to the um, wildlife management areas. Now, it just so happens that line 19 of my survey does uh, almost bisect the main Atchafalaya Delta. Um, it, it comes across from Point of Fur Island and uh, runs, runs up East Pass and then, and then goes north from there. And so, um, so we do have one line that, that cuts part of that area, but the inference space of my survey is the entire coast where the survey data that you see from the WMA survey is specific to each WMA. And, uh, and I was just gonna, (laughs) I was gonna tell Mike, um, it, it, it's how difficult change is on all of us. As Mike said, there were about seven thousand birds. No, I'm it sorry, was, I just looked it was actually. <laughs> I looked at the data. I was like, "Oh my god, I was off." It's only seven hundred. Oh
3: yeah,
2: yeah. I had to pull that page. I was like, "Oh, I think that was way too much." Yeah, seven hundred and fourteen at the main delta, and six eighty four at the wax. It's like, geez, wow. You know, we would hardly even even, you know, include that in our counts, you know, when we were dealing with rafts and thousands of birds, right? Yeah. Wow. Disturbing.
4: And that's what stimulated the back and forth email exchange. Like, you know, what's, what's going on when you talk about a decline of, from a a quarter million birds down to less than, you know, a, a thousand on each of the, each of the deltas, like what's going on? And that's kind of where this exchange started. Um, And it relates to some changes in hunting pressure to kind of get, you know, right to the story of where we're going to, things we're going to be talking about. But in order to kind of pull out some of what may be going on, I wanted to ask you guys just to sort of share some of your stories about that. Uh, Larry, I'll start with you, get you just to talk about how you, how and when you started hunting the Deltas, what were your experiences? There and you know, kind of, what did your hunting experience through the years look like, and and your decisions on kind of when to when to stop uh, trying to hunt down there? Uh,
1: my experience at the Atchafalaya Delta.
4: Um, started
1: in, in January of 1990, that 1989-90 season. And remember, those were 30-day seasons with three duck limits.
4: Larry, that turned out to be the high point as we, as we now know it, right? Pretty much yeah. the high point. It was all down from there. <laughs> it, 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 it really was. Um, I remember that first time that I
1: hunted there. Um, I caught on pretty quickly that we would go out at low tide uh, we actually would put decoys in those, those moonscape divots that Mike talked about in the last podcast, <laughs> and we'd wait for the tide to come up, and we would hunt the birds coming up on the tide. There was very little cover out there. We would make makeshift blinds out of, out of wax myrtle, or we would coddle up to a couple of big logs that had, had washed up on those, on those mud flats. And we had excellent hunting. In fact, the story I like to tell is that that last weekend of the season in January of 1990, we saw two other boats the entire weekend. We had the whole place to ourselves, and that was the way the hunting was pretty much um, 1990, 91, 92. Uh, in 92, the teal season was uh, was reopened. After five years of being closed and the teal hunting in September at the Atchafalaya Delta, I I actually kneeled down in the Delta duck potato on those flats and had no problems uh, harvesting blue-winged teal. Um, In 1995 and 96, the hunting pressure really increased. You might remember in 95, we went to 50-day seasons with five duck limits in 97 60 day seasons with six duck limits and so the hunting pressure on the wax delta which is where I'd hunted to then chased me over to the main delta and the main delta was where I did my hunting again the same strategies um, I would I would motor around the passes looking for birds then I'd park my boat and and either slog my decoys and my gear out uh, out onto the flats Um, or push-pull my P-Row if the water was deep enough, and that was how I hunted. But more and more people, um, I I think Mike will probably talk about the improvements in GPS, um, a lot of internet communication between hunters. Uh, There were a lot more people down there hunting. It became more competitive, but, but that was okay. Um, all I had to do was, was work a little harder, find more remote places. But then, um, and, and again, I'm going to come off as cliche, but then I started getting passed by people in surface drive motors. First, the long tail go devils. You know, I had parked my outboard motored boat, uh, on the shores of the pass and I was walking or hauling a sled, or paddling a P-Row, and somebody would go past me in a surface drive motor. Um, I had a spot that I hunted regularly off Natal Pass uh, in the, uh, on the main delta. I had a spot that it was all I was physically capable of doing, was parking my boat, getting out past the reforestation project, and into this little slough in front of Andrew Island. And no one could get in there to Andrew Island, and I had excellent hunting for a couple of years until somebody with a surface drive motor motored past me, motored past me and my decoys, and got into that that side of Andrew Island. And both of us had excellent hunting for about two or three weeks, and then that was it. And so it became obvious to me in 2004, 2005, and definitely by 2006, that I either had to retool, um, get a different boat and a different motor to be able to compete or find another place to hunt. And my last hunt on the main Atchafalad Delta was in 2006, simply because I was unable to compete. And that reward that you talked about was was no longer worthwhile that that seventeen mile run down the Atchafalaya River. Um, it was it it was no longer worth it for me
4: larry i've I've only been hunting at the Delta once. you know, I came to Louisiana in two thousand and five. And I hunted there only once. Uh, actually, uh, Dr. Frank Roer took me out one one day, and we hunted it much the much as you described. We he anchored his boat in one of the channels, and we trudged off through uh, through some through some brush onto one of the flats, and. About the only now we did shoot some ducks there, but one of my lasting memories was that's not that's not for the faint of heart. Uh, Trudging through that mud is not for the faint of heart, or the or those that are out of shape. It will make you work. Amen. And so, Mike, I wanted to bring you into this uh, now. Have you talk about some of your uh, talk about some of your hunting experiences? When did you first start? If there's anything that you'd like to add to what Larry. Uh, Larry said, or if we just wanted to kind of talk about some of the changes in uh, in hunting pressure uh, and some of the challenge that it posed to to you as a manager, um, and and some of the other things that came along with that. So, wh- what would you like to add here?
2: Whew, okay. Well, first off, so Julie's home and she just poured a glass of wine and 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 she gave it to me. So I'm gonna tell you. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Right. And she's
2: laughing because I'm telling her, be quiet. They can hear anything you do That's uh, right. anyway. So. But she just saved this podcast. Right. She just <laughs> saved it. Um, well, OK, so I, I will just say um, before I start indulging in finer beverages that, you know, Larry Larry nailed it right he 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 did, and the first hunt I had was in was in the fall of of eighty eight and I remember it was warm, so it was probably November, probably in the first week or so. Um, with a co-worker, a fisheries biologist, and um, we went right on uh, to the wax, and we went on Campground Island, Larry's, you know, right where that is, the main campground. Well, it used to be in the day we had the two campgrounds, right? But the main campground, there wasn't much else past that, right? I mean, it was a little bit, but not, and we didn't know what we were doing. We had a handful of decoys, a P. row, and we set up and it was like Mallard's just, you know, were coming in and I was in awe. Um, because I grew up hunting in Vermilion Parish and with some of my buddies as teenagers and we had to, you know, find, you know, we had permission for a little bitty rice field and and we didn't kill any ducks, you know, very few ducks, right? We just, it, it was slow hunting and, um, and that opened my eyes to, and then of course starting to, you know, do some of the aerial surveys and, and just see that place and what it was about was phenomenal. Uh, the hunts were just, you know like Larry said phenomenal you could and that was the other thing I will tell you about invasives is that another technique that I often used if it was a kind of a quick type hunt and you had water hyacinth around you you built up a little a little nutrient pad of water hyacinth you sat in the middle of it and you could kill ducks I mean and, and you know Larry nailed it with the tide back in the day Frank talked about that in his comments Back in the day, you know, when those birds that I was telling you about rafting offshore, when that tide would start coming in, and it could be in the middle of the day, literally. It could be 10 a.m. or 2 p.m. It didn't matter. If that tide, when that tide started coming up, a lot of times you laid, like he said, you laid your decoys in the sand or in the mud and waited. And when it came up, the droves of birds came with it. It was truly You know, you thought you were the best caller. You thought the (laughs) decoy spread was the best. It didn't have to be. (laughs) I mean, and I could go on and on. And in my days of working there from 93 to 98, um, you know, one year, uh, and I will say, but the hunting was so good that I could do this during my work hour, right before I started work, I could go make a 15 minute hunt most of the time. I mean, that that's and that's not bragging. It's just, a, you know, it's a lot of that's a fact. And it wasn't every day, but there were many days that were like that. And and, uh, and I hunted a lot. I mean, I really did. I hunted a whole lot. Um, I stayed
4: out there a lot. Yeah, sure, Mike. Know. If you're fifteen minutes away from one of the best hunting spots on, on, I mean, on the look, planet, you know, why not yeah. go and go and do yeah. that and then get back to work? And and, you know, and,
2: and less than fifteen minutes, right? I mean, even you know, I'd go right around Long Island Pass just right there. Um or, and we and we could tie that into enforcement work. I remember making cases when when Canvas back was closed. Um, you know, and they were droves of Canvas back. And, you know, making cases of people shooting canvas backs, you know, they would, they would leave them and I'd see them floating by me. I'd go pick them up and I'd go write them up. You know, I mean, that was, um, that was some of the fun and, but you got, you know, you, you got a rapport with a lot of the other hunters, the good guys and, and, um, you know, found out what they were doing, where the birds were. And then of course, you know, having the advantage of flying surveys and, and, and being out there a lot, um, just uh, added to it, and and then of course the change of watching the numbers and and Larry nailed that you know social media, but primarily some of the magazines started printing stuff, and I'll never forget one of the I won't use names, but one of the authors was on the campground there at the wax and wanted to interview me, and you know as part of my job I kind of yeah you know I had to do it pretty much, but. I knew where that was going and what that was going to do and it didn't matter. Right. It wasn't so much that article, but you know, those things were happening and, and, um, and you saw, like Larry said, you know, the, the advance of, of, uh, shallow drive boats and what that became and, um, and what it did to, to resting birds and shooting all day. And it, it, uh, you know, there were things about the glory of that was so fun, but there were things about it that was, you know, that was really uh, sombering, I'll, I'll say. So I'll leave it at that without going. But again, we could go on for for days with these with these comments, you know.
4: Mike and Larry. That is as good a place as any, probably, to wrap up this episode. Uh, we certainly have more to discuss on this issue, specifically related to how you as a manager became concerned about some of these changes that you were seeing with regard to uh, to bird numbers and likely some increased access, increasing pressure, being responsible for them, some of those changes, and then what your agency tried to do in response. So, let's wrap up here and then have you guys rejoin us to continue this discussion. Mike, Larry, thank you again for your time. Thank you, Mike. Thanks. A special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Mike Carlos with Ducks Unlimited's Southern Regional Office and former manager of the Chafalaya Delta Wildlife Management Area, and Larry Reynolds, Waterfowl Program Manager for Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries. We certainly appreciate their time, their stories, uh, and I appreciate their friendship. We thank our producer, Clay Baird, a digital warrior, for all the great work that he does with this podcast and getting it out to you to you, our listener, we thank you for your support of this podcast, and most importantly, we thank you for supporting wetlands and waterfowl conservation.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show, and visit www.ducks.org dupodcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.